On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Bill Kelly, we are talking about the court ruling about encampments in the city of Hamilton that will now allow the city to follow through on its bylaw to remove encampments. What should happen now, though? How should this be dealt with? What about going forward? We'll talk about that one. We're going to talk about the minimum wage rising with Ontario's Labour Minister, Monty McNaughton. Ontario, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce is pushing for a green surge to try and change our economy, change our innovation departments, trying to change things so that Ontario can take advantage of the green economy. How will they do this? Rocco Rossi, the president of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, joins us. And Mike Wilner, baseball writer for the Star, joins us to talk about the end of the World Series, Alex Anthopoulos, and the Houston Astros, otherwise known as those dirty cheaters. Stay with us. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, a judge gave his ruling. Um, There had been a request to allow encampments, tent encampments within the city of Hamilton to stay up, to preclude the city of Hamilton from enforcing the bylaw that it put in place to say that, you know, these people who are in these encampments, they should be allowed to stay where they are. And the city should not be allowed to clear them out. And the judge said, no, no, the, the, the bylaw is um, very much paraphrasing, but the bylaw is reasonable and the city can go ahead and enforce its bylaw. What does this mean? I want to bring in Benjamin Reese, who's a housing lawyer with Downtown Legal Services, a community legal clinic, and he's a clinical education program operated by the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Benjamin, thank you for the time today. Thank you, Scott. So where does something like this, and and I mean, I know we've had encampments in cities all over the place. Uh, Now that the city has the judicial and legal, not just authority, I suppose, because they had the bylaw, but the, the, what's the better word, the backing, the, the encouragement maybe is another word. Now that they have this, where do these things go? Well, yeah, we should probably clarify to start that uh, the judge, um, Justice Goodman, actually did not determine whether or not the bylaw was ultimately legal. That's going to take longer to do. So um, what was before Justice Goodman and has been litigated a few times about the Toronto encampments uh, earlier last year, um, just and before Justice Goodman last week, is, or, or this week, is that... Um, is whether or not there should be a temporary pause on enforcement of the of the bylaw, while uh, these people in in the encampments get a chance to actually make their case uh, that they have a constitutional right not to be uh, removed in the way the city's proposing. And the way that the city is proposing is to say that you cannot camp on public property. Correct? Is it is it more? Is it broader that's, than that's that? Right. That's... I mean, it, yeah, more or less. They're, they want to go back to enforcement of uh, the bylaw that's been in place for quite some time, albeit with uh, an additional protocol to deal with uh, or attempt to deal with some of the concerns arising from the, the current encampment. Uh, but that wasn't the case uh, in Hamilton, uh, you know, until recently. Uh, for most of the pandemic, for much of the pandemic, uh, the city has agreed to uh, a kind of uh, stand down uh, around those encampments, um, sort of under under pressure from the same type of litigation. But um, you know, these what was explicitly left open by the by the court is the question of whether or not that's it's now constitutional for the city to go forward. And he's saying, well, I can't decide that yet. That that takes more time. And so, you know, when you bring a case like this, uh, often the first step is to seek you know, a temporary injunction to say, okay, until we can figure this out, let's just leave everything the way it is. And what the judge refused to do was that. There are clearly cities all over North America. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were down in Los Angeles and drove through Skid Row. That That is a, uh, and when I say Skid Row, it's, it's not a negative, that's what they call it down there. Uh, San Francisco has big issues with this right now. There are clearly lots of cities that have encampments, that have tent cities, are any of them legal or are those all cases where the city has simply said, we're going to let you do this, even though legally we have the permission to clear you out if we wanted to? I, yeah, it's not that simple. I mean, for starters, I can't really comment on, uh, I, I'm not really uh, the, the right person to, to speak to 
what's legal in, in let's say, uh, other states. Um, in Canada. But in, ca- in Canada, for sure, there's an open question. Um, and it's a question that actually, um, in this case, and in a case last year called Black in Toronto, another judge said, yeah, there's a real open question here that, that needs to be litigated, which is, you know, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects um, and guarantees security of the person. Um, there's been several court decisions in British Columbia uh, several years ago that have said, you know, in certain situations where there's not sufficient shelter space um, provided by the municipality, uh, that, you know, people have a right to shelter themselves, to protect themselves from the elements, because where else are they going to go? And, you know, it, it's a very, you know, limited uh statement of a person's rights, because it's just a matter of, you know, in the, in the BC cases, it's really just a matter of counting the number of homeless individuals and counting the number of, of shelter beds available. Uh, but there's further questions, I think, that have been raised, particularly about whether, okay, is that any bed in any big congregate space crammed all together? I mean, there's definitely concerns about whether that's safe when we're dealing with, uh, with COVID-19. But I think there's there's further issues that need to be addressed in terms of whether or not that's suitable, for example, with people with certain disabilities and other characteristics that say, you know, I, what I need is is a space that I can actually where I can actually shut the door, um, where I'm not sleeping right next to dozens of strangers, um, you know, who could beat me up or take my stuff. And I mean, there's there's a lot of further constitutional rights to be examined there. And, you know, I think the question that the the court has only addressed is, you know, are we going to allow people to remain in these encampments while they get a chance to have their full day in court? And the answer, both last year um, in in Black and Toronto and and this year uh, in Hamilton, apparently, is, nope, Um, the, the city can go on enforcing its bylaw right up until uh, the someday when uh, when people in the encampments finally are able to have a full hearing on whether or not their charter rights entitle them to stay. You mentioned that the charter guarantees security of the person. Uh, it's a really interesting question then that arises from that. Uh, we are heading into winter. It's getting colder, living outside in a tent, um, you know, n- not easy. If somebody was to die in one of these camp in, in, in these encampments, if they were to freeze to death, heaven forbid, or something else, who's responsible? Does if, if it's on public property, could the city be held liable for someone dying in a in an encampment if they allowed those to stay? You know, I I, I don't think so. I, I think that um, as as opposed to what I mean, moving people, the, the idea that people need to be moved out of these encampments for their own good, so that they can go. I don't know, sleep in a ravine somewhere. There, there are very few uh, spaces um, for people who are outdoor, um, outdoor sleeping rough uh, to go. Uh, the overwhelming evidence from people in encampments is that uh, they feel safer together. And I, I think I would too, actually. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, that, that's kind of denies their, or sort of sidesteps the bigger question, which is if a person dies, uh, because we have failed to create uh, a society where pe- where everyone can afford um, at least a bit of shelter from the elements. And if that's the reason they die, then aren't we all responsible anyway? Aren't we all responsible morally? I mean, I think this is the, and, and for that matter, constitutionally, uh, I think that should be the far bigger concern. The city would say that there are beds available right now. There may not be, and I don't know if the city would say there are beds for every single person, but that there certainly are open beds right now. And that those who want to come out of their tent and stay in a hotel or stay in a shelter, there is room available. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, yes, there are always going to be, I assume, some who will say, I would prefer to be outside I'd prefer not to be in the, the, the shelter. I'd prefer for whatever reason to be in the tent. I, you know, uh, I guess those are going to exist, but for those who have the option to go in, what should happen with them? Should they be told you have to, because there is a space available or should we have the option to say, even though there is room, you don't have to use it. I think that 
simply providing room, uh, simply providing space, um, whether it's in a large gymnasium, you know, a, a, a large room where the lights are on 24 seven, uh, a space, you know, that is either, you know, cramped or a space where, for example, uh, a husband and wife can't stay together because it's a men's only shelter or a women's only shelter, um, spaces where families have to be split up. I think, you know, asking whether or not we can force people into whatever space we want and we decide whether it's good enough, uh, is a question I wouldn't think we should be asking in a free society. This, you know, can we sleep everybody in cattle cars? I think is is a question that the court isn't really contending with because they're sort of treating a bed like a bed, and uh, you know, regardless where it is. Well, I don't think you or I or anybody else is prepared to sleep on any bed in any space just because we're told to. Um, it, you know, <laughs> depending on who you are, but also just in terms of what people need. I think the rise of these encampments shows that what we provide in terms of shelter space really isn't good enough. And in many cases, is not humane. There is another side to this story. And clearly, we're talking about the people who are in these places. But there's another side that has often been raised. And that is, we've heard stories from people who live near some of these encampments of violence there, of fires there, of drug use there, of sex out in the open there with people is this fair to not do something about this? Is this fair to homeowners and taxpayers and people who live in that neighborhood who suddenly have this encroaching on their area? It, it, it are, should they simply be told, that's okay, you know what, deal with it. it it's only fair that they be allowed to do this. No, I, I think what we should all be told and what we should all tell each other is that we need to commit the resources to actually provide adequate housing. Because the evidence also before the court um, is that everyone in the encampments is looking for a place to live. Uh, this is, there's not, I, I don't think we've seen a case of someone who says, this is my very favorite way of living is, is in this encampment. It's just the best of what's currently available. So I think for the benefit of homeowners, uh, other members of the community, who'd like to have uh, an open park space um, where they don't see anyone sleeping rough. I, I think the answer is fairly straightforward. The answer that satisfies everyone um, is to make sure that we provide uh, housing, not, uh, not just a bed, but a room and a room where perhaps, you know, a family can be together uh, just like the rest of us are able to do. I mean, treating people with the same dignity that uh, that we all expect. And, you know, in that kind of scenario, uh, I think, you know, people's charter right to sleep wherever they want is read a bit differently. So you know, this whole case, the, these cases arise from governments uh, and some taxpayers, perhaps, unwilling to uh, commit the resources that are necessary to do that. I mean, let's. We can't deny that would be very, very expensive to to do that, would we not? I mean, it, it's good. It's not an it's not an inexpensive problem to solve. Well, I, you know, I can deny that, and and here's why: because when research has been done on housing first models, you know, the the consensus that I'm familiar with in, in the research is that actually providing people with housing is less expensive than the costs that society pays as a result of people not having adequate housing. People who spend time in the emergency room, people who spend time incarcerated, uh, and, and, you know, and, and you could probably go a lot further in terms of the cost to policing and public health, fire, etc. These are all costs that the taxpayer bears regardless. And, you know, it's a baffling, quite frankly, that so many of our uh, municipal leaders aren't prepared to make the initial investment that the research shows would actually pay off. There are those, and uh, I mean, look, uh, we may disagree, but I don't think we will on this one. Uh, there are those who, for various reasons, um, whether it's mental health issues or addiction or whatever else, uh, become very, very challenging cases and um, maybe more challenging than the typical person who, who may when I say simply be homeless, I, you know, simply, I don't know if that's a fair way to say it, but 
there are more challenging cases. What happens with those that because of addiction issues or because of mental health, it, it becomes much more challenging to house or to home these people because it just is. What, what do we do in those cases? I think we rise to that challenge. I mean, listen, I, you know, I agree with you uh, that this isn't easy work. It's not easy work for people involved providing uh, emergency shelter and overnight housing. It's not easy for uh, the justice system to deal with these issues. It's not not easy, and it's especially not easy for the people experiencing it themselves. But, you know, taking the time uh, to understand how someone needs to live differently is, I think that's the lesson that we've been trying to learn for a long time. I mean, I think only recently we've been reminded that there was a time in Canada when we didn't understand, uh, the government didn't really understand how it is that Indigenous people wanted to live. And we thought the solution was to try to force them to live like white people and send all their kids to residential schools, force them to go somewhere that those families didn't want to go, split up families. I don't think we're learning those lessons. It's, we're saying we're going right back to, well, if you're different, you don't live the way I think people should live, then I'm just going to send you to a bed wherever I decide. You know, I, I just don't think that that's, uh, you know, a, a good approach moving forward. I don't think it's, it's, and it's certainly not a solution because, you know, over here in Toronto, we've had this experience of, it doesn't seem to matter how much uh, resources are deployed to police to clear out an entire park. Um, the encampments just move around because those people don't disappear. They, they continue to be in our communities. They continue to need a place to sleep. Yeah, and that that ultimately, and we got to run. Unfortunately, that ultimately becomes the huge challenge: is that it's it's uh, even if you find beds, even if you provide all the beds, uh, I I believe that there will still be those that choose not to use it. Uh, I don't know uh, what you do with those. It is a challenge for those who would want to use it. Surely, we we would love to be able to to handle all of them and find a place for all that. It's it's really complicated. It really is. Uh, Benjamin Reese, housing lawyer with Downtown Legal Services. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably heard yesterday, in a bit of a surprise to a lot of people anyway, that Ontario is going to be raising the minimum wage to $15 in the new year. And when I say a bit of a surprise, uh, that may be an understatement. A lot of people were completely taken aback by this, had no idea something like this was coming, particularly since this had been a fight earlier about raising the minimum wage. But here we are. And when I say here we are, well, here we are back probably with a bit of another fight because now we have some who are thrilled and some who are saying, hold on a second, uh, this is not being all that helpful. To help us sort through this, I want to bring in, and pleased to bring in, Monty McNaughton, Ontario's Labour Minister, to help us with all this. Mr. McNaughton, thank you for the time today. Morning, Scott, and I have to say, I love the ACDC music leading into this. Do we not all? I mean, on a, on a early in the morning, we need ACDC to get us going, don't we? Yeah, that, that and coffee, absolutely. They haven't written a song about coffee, but you know what? That would probably be the perfect mix, I think. That, that's something to suggest before they fully retire. Uh, absolutely. W- why $15? Well, look, uh, it's important that we have uh, the backs of uh, workers. Um, Premier Ford is uh, continues to drive change uh, in the province. Um, we're coming out of, uh, obviously, a global pandemic. Uh, with yesterday's announcement, 760,000 people, uh, those frontline workers in grocery stores and our small shops along Main Street have been uh, supporting families throughout this, uh, and it's time that they uh, get uh, a bigger paycheck. That's why we're increasing the minimum wage to fifteen dollars. But was did the premier not just a couple of years ago say that fifteen dollar minimum wage would be a job killer? Well, look, uh, as we're coming out of, of this pandemic, it's important that we uh, rebalance uh, the scales. Um, yesterday's announcement is just the latest in a series of uh, reforms that uh, we're introducing. Uh, to ensure that workers have bigger paychecks, uh, more workplace protections, but most importantly, that we're also supporting uh, workers so they can get into better paying jobs. We don't want uh, an economy just based around minimum wage jobs, uh, and we're doing a lot of work on retraining and upskilling workers for uh, bigger paychecks. 
I'm sure that, uh, well, I know that uh, there are those at the minimum wage scale who are happy with this or happier with this. I know that when the premier made the announcement yesterday, he was, uh, he had a number of union representatives there. So I, I'm sure there is happiness about that. The, the flip side is that we've just, as you've mentioned a couple of times, just come through COVID, we're coming out of COVID businesses. It's been widely publicized how businesses have struggled. They've been shut down. They haven't been allowed to operate. Uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business says the average COVID-related debt now to a small business is $190,000. Um, what about, while the minimum wage is going to help the people who are working, perhaps, what about the people who are the owners of these small businesses who now look at this and say, well, we this doesn't help us, we can't afford this? Well, look, um, this is a, a balanced uh, approach. Uh, again, 760,000 people have been working uh, throughout this pandemic. Uh, they deserve uh, to get a bump in pay. And of course, the last few months, we've seen uh, inflation rising. I, I think yesterday, too, a uh, price of a litre of gas between a uh, buck 47 and a buck 50 a litre. We need to help uh, workers uh, in Ontario. And when it comes to small businesses, there is no doubt that it's been uh, obviously a very difficult time the last two years. That's why uh, under Premier Ford's leadership, we stepped up uh, to the tune of $4 billion in grants and supports. Uh, And I would argue that the timing uh, is right to boost the pay uh, for minimum wage. Uh, Businesses have been able to largely uh, reopen uh, and they're going to remain open because of the work of the people uh, of Ontario and battling the pandemic, getting vaccinated uh, that's why the future looks bright. You mentioned inflation. Won't this increase inflation? Because you know the businesses are not going to just absorb these losses. The extra costs are going to get baked into the prices, which will raise prices. What, if inflation is the concern, isn't this going to lead to more inflation? Look, the, the minimum wage isn't the cause of uh, inflation that we've seen uh, in Ontario and across uh, Canada. Uh, but I also want to point out, um, uh, again, that we're doing a lot of work in helping workers get uh, better jobs and bigger paychecks. One of the programs, uh, again, under Premier Ford's leadership that we launched during the pandemic was a a redeveloped second career program. So any worker uh, who lost their job during the pandemic or had their hours reduced uh, can uh, participate in a retraining program. All of these programs uh, are less than 12 months. And it really matches uh, workers that have been impacted by the pandemic with in-demand jobs uh, in their own local community. So this is how we're going to, you know, increase uh, take-home pay to battle uh, inflation. But also it does build stronger families and and stronger communities. And that ultimately uh, is our goal. I do have to ask one more thing on this one, and that's um, one of the groups perhaps that is speaking most loudly about this since yesterday, I mean, it's a very short period of time, uh, are those who are running restaurants because they had a minimum wage of actually $12.55 an hour because tips are involved in everything. Uh, They're now going up to 15. It's a 20% increase. And they're saying we can't, this is huge, 20% increase to our staff. We can't do this. What about restaurants? Is this not going to be detrimental to restaurants now that those costs, again, are going to have to be added to the menu prices? Well, it may surprise um, listeners, but, you know, having a restaurant minimum wage is actually an outdated uh, practice. Um, Ontario is the second last province to actually have that. So you're right. uh, We are going to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour for those workers. That means uh, a pay increase of $5,000 per year. And remember, a lot of these workers didn't get tips uh, throughout the pandemic. So this is going to go a, a long ways um, to helping those workers. It's also going to go a long ways to helping fill this generational labor shortage uh, that we have. I mean, today in Ontario, 300,000 jobs are going uh, unfilled. We've got to uh, address this issue and, and the minimum wage is going to help that too. Well, let's go down that path. Let's go the other direction then on this one, uh, because there are the, there are some, I don't know if it's many, but there are certainly some who are saying $15 is a nice start, but it isn't nearly enough. The minimum wage should actually be a living wage. Sh- should you have gone higher with the amount that you're going up? Well, again, uh, it's, it's a balanced approach. We want to ensure that we're rewarding uh, those workers who have been there for all of us uh, the last uh, year and a half or so. But again, this is a start. A lot of minimum wage jobs are also a starting point for workers. Um, I, I think of what we're doing uh, to encourage more people to go into the skilled trades. Uh, in construction alone, we're going to be short 100,000 workers over the next number of years. We all know people in the trades making six figures with 
pensions and benefits, we need uh, people to participate uh, in those jobs as well. So again, everything we're doing is about bigger paychecks, more worker protections, and creating opportunities uh, for people to uh, upskill and, and retrain to get better jobs. I had a very interesting discussion yesterday with someone uh, who raised an issue that I had not considered, but I want to ask you. Um, and they said, look, there should be two different kinds of minimum wage workers. And I don't know how you would exactly break it down, but they say someone who is actually trying to put food on the table, as you've described, to feed their family, uh, that's one thing. A high school student working 10 or 12 hours a week for, at a menial job, do they need the same minimum wage increase that someone who is supporting a family needs? It, it, is there a difference? Could there be, should there be a difference between someone who's supporting a family and someone who's doing this on the side? Well, look, there is a difference. I mean, with our proposed legislation, uh, the general minimum wage is going to go to $15 an hour. Uh, the student minimum wage is going to go to $14.10 uh, an hour. Um, this is going to help uh, a lot of young people out there save for post-secondary education or save uh, to enter uh, an apprenticeship at a, at a trade school or, or a union hall. Um, these are the opportunities, again, that we want to uh, create. And uh, again, this is uh, ultimately bigger paychecks for uh, all of those 760,000 people out there. Is this going to have a spin-off effect in that? Uh, I think the number I saw reported was there would be 15,000 public service employees who would fall into this category who would immediately go up. But then you're going to have all the other people, all the other public service unions who will look at them and say, well, then we need, if, if they're going up by a certain percent, then we need to go up by a certain percent when our contracts come up. D does one plus one not keep pushing this thing further and further? I mean, we're, we're in a tough spot with our finances right now in this province. Does this, does this not automatically lead to much bigger expenses down the road? Well, look, workers are in a tough spot right now. I mean, as I said, the price of a liter of gas is around a, a buck fifty a liter. This is to help uh, workers uh, in the province, and uh, of course, the collective bargaining agreements are are the agreements, and the unions and employers will negotiate uh, those. But I also would like to point out, like many employers, I, I met with Tim Hortons workers, uh, sorry, Tim Horton uh, dealers the other day, and and they're paying well above the minimum wage now because there's such a, a labor shortage. Um, so, uh, again, there's a lot of change happening uh, as we come out of the pandemic, uh, but this really is going to give a, a bit of a boost to those minimum wage earners. For those people who are very happy about this, there's more because it, this is not built into this also, the minimum wage is going to continue to rise, right? It goes up with inflation now each year that's built in. Yes, it'll be predictable for small businesses and for workers. Uh, we'll make uh, an announcement um, on Thursday about that mechanism. It's going to be in the fall economic statement about exactly how the minimum wage will go up, but um, we'll give uh, businesses uh, that predictability uh, going forward and, and workers as well. Monty McNaughton, Ontario's Labour Minister, very much appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on and explaining this. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pleased to welcome into the show Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Rocco, thanks for the time today. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. I want to get to the thing that we're bringing you on here really to talk about in just a moment. But just last hour, we were talking to Monty McNaughton, Ontario's Labour Minister, about the announcement yesterday that the minimum wage is going to be raised starting next year. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce, I'm sure, has some thoughts on this. What are your thoughts on the minimum wage going up? Well, first of all, is just uh, incredibly disappointed that uh, our thoughts weren't asked for ahead of it. So there was there was no heads up. There's no time to plan. I mean, you say it's next year, but we're talking 60 days away um, at a time when uh, a lot of businesses are still struggling, are not fully open. And uh, look, everyone wants uh, fair and just uh, increases. But let's also understand that these are extraordinary times where we've lost tens of thousands of businesses to bankruptcy. And effectively, those uh, in the weakest positions are now having uh, costs added um, at a time when they're just trying to keep their heads above water. We don't think that's uh, appropriate timing. 
Um, and if they want to do something further for workers, there are support programs that the government could um, could institute to help bridge uh, people. And let's plan together uh, for uh, for the increases in a way that's rational and is not going to put the recovery at risk. One of the comments that uh, Mr. McNaughton made, and, and this one I was, I'm not an economist, um, so I don't pretend to be one. Um, but one of the comments or the words that came up several times was that workers have to deal with inflation. Is this not going to lead to more inflation if suddenly now the prices that are at, that these businesses have to deal with are not just put into the price of their products or their menu items or whatever else? Is this not going to just raise prices across the board? I, I, absolutely. I mean, the you know right now central banks around the world are are debating whether the inflation we're seeing is transitory uh, caused by a variety of supply shocks and temporary changes uh, versus, um, you know, sticky or permanent. Um, and wage inflation uh, is never transitory. Uh, you, you build that into everything because this isn't, you know, to be clear, this isn't just about those at minimum wage. It has a knock-on effect to all wages because people who are at, you know, $16 or $17 say, well, now that minimum wage is at this, you know, I, I need my extra, you know, 80 cents an hour, a dollar an hour, $2 an hour to keep the delta between me and, uh, and what is minimum wage. And that then ripples through the whole economy. Yeah, uh, one more thing on this, and then I'll, we'll get to the other thing. Um, I, I, I'm you're, you're not a politician, but I'm kind of trying to figure this out a little bit from a political position as well, because a lot of people are saying, look, a, an election is coming up, and this is Doug Ford trying to win labor support. I, I, I don't see a likelihood that no matter what they do, that the Ford government is ever going to have the support of unions when the election finally rolls around. And at the flip side, I, I'm not sure that businesses are going to be too happy with this. So how is this a political winner for his government? Uh, look, you're going to have to ask the premier on that. All, all I know is that the, uh, the announcement was there with uh, union leadership and not a single uh, business leader um, that were not at all consulted um, on something that... Uh, gets then instituted within 60 days at uh, a time when you have incredible weakness in the economy. Let us go to the other reason we have you on today, which is um, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce has released a report called The Climate Catalyst, Ontario's Leadership in the Green Global Economy. What is the goal with this report? Well, it's really to seize the opportunity that, that climate change and the response to it is not simply uh, doom and gloom of more costs, but real opportunity for uh, Ontario businesses and the Ontario economy um, to, to take advantage of these, of these opportunities and help be part of the solution. Because let's not forget, Canada as a whole... Uh, represents less than 1.6% of all greenhouse gas emissions globally. Uh, it doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't uh, do what we can to reduce it. Absolutely. But the real leverage for us is not affecting just the 1.6. It's learning from things that we do with to reduce the 1.6 and selling that technology around the world, creating jobs, creating more opportunity, and taking advantage of the incredible, um, the incredible resources, both physical and uh, personnel, that Ontario has to offer. So, is this a is this a document that is outlining business opportunities or is this a document that is outlining changes that we should make within the province to try and enhance our green situation for lack of a better word it is it is both it is uh challenging the government on putting together a long-term uh, strategy because we we know this train is coming at us 
the longer you wait without a comprehensive strategy, as we all know when we're you know, planning renovations at home, if you wait for the last moment, you're going to get jammed on prices. Uh, if you can plan, if you can sequence things, uh, yes, you're going to be spending money, but you're going to do it in as efficient a way as possible. And the other thing is to look at those policies that would be helpful for us to really take advantage of the opportunities out there, whether it's, you know, the green economy requires a whole bunch of key minerals that are going to have to be mined. And Ontario is blessed with many of these key minerals and is one of the, you know, from our perspective, one of the most environmentally sound, uh, most from a human rights standpoint, from a worker rights standpoint, et cetera. And so how do we set up policies to be able to accelerate our role in these ex- in these exports? How do we set up policies to support the fact that now Canada and Ontario in particular punches way above our weight in terms of uh, clean tech companies, innovations that, yes, can have a certain impact within the Ontario economy, but could have an enormous impact going global. And that's, and that's including things like small modular reactors. Ontario is a global leader in nuclear energy, which is greenhouse gas free. It's one of the key things that allowed us to shut down our coal-fired plants and lead North America in that that movement to go away from from coal, the dirtiest of the the greenhouse uh, gas-emitting energies. Um, But why not take advantage of that to then export that technology globally and build the jobs and economic activity that comes from that? So... You're then looking at this more, it sounds like, as an opportunity for innovation rather than simply for environmental policies. Because, I mean, we could take Canada, we could take Ontario back to the Stone Age, as you pointed out. We're, we're such a small part of the pollutants and everything else. We could go back to the Stone Age and it's not going to make much of a difference in the scope of the world. You're looking at this as a chance to build the economy and the innovation ideas to sell to the rest of the world. And thereby having a global impact on climate change, because you've pointed it out exactly. China alone represents 30% of all global greenhouse gas emissions and is growing at a rate that even if we went to zero, that would be absorbed in the rate of growth that that China is currently experiencing. So if we can, this isn't just about our economic uh, opportunity, it's about having a global impact on, on uh, climate change by exporting technology that's going to allow them to transition away from, uh, from coal and to do a much better job with greenhouse gases there in India and Japan and the United States, etc. Is this a short-term or a long-term project from your perspective? Well, the short-term part of it is to be aggressive on having a long-term plan. Uh, so that's a bit of a, a wake-up call and a, and a push. And the, the report, and we're going to be rolling this out over the next several months uh, with a series of, of events that are going to focus on different pieces. It's quite uh, a comprehensive piece of, uh, piece of work. Uh, that will look at different technologies and different opportunities that that Ontario uh, has that looks at the challenges, but then challenges from a public policy standpoint and from an industry innovation standpoint, what the opportunities are. And part of the reason I asked is, you know, that we've got this uh, this climate conference that's going on in Glasgow right now that 25,000 people have flown in to be part of. And right off the bat, we've been hearing simply that we are in the red zone, that we have to fix everything by tomorrow or the world is done, that we are, you know, the clock is at 11.59.59. And based on the words that are coming out of Glasgow, where all the world's climate experts apparently are, there's not time for a long-term plan. Uh, 
it has to be done by tomorrow. Basically, we have to accelerate this to the point where it's ready to go instantly almost. Well, look at the the old wisdom is the best time to plant a tree is 25 years ago. That's the true. second best time is today. Uh, and so we are saying let's let's get going, but let's also be um, let's also be realistic uh, in terms of what that transition is going to look like. Let's not let um, perfection get in the way of a very good. Uh, you know, we could make an enormous difference to global greenhouse gases if we were to uh, have uh, China and India uh, move from coal to liquefied natural gas, for instance, from Canada. Um, that would have oh, a, there's far a problem. greater impact on, on greenhouse gases. And, and that would happen today uh, than, than, uh, trying, than, than holding out for all of the conversions that are required. So there are many practical short-term things that can be done, but there's also longer-term things that can be done. And, and we at the OCC are enormous believers in the power of innovation as a way of moving us finally out of this challenge, which is not to diminish the challenge at all, but it's to say, let's take advantage of these incredible uh, brilliant people and resources that we have and think about them not just uh, to change that reality in Ontario, which is a small piece of the puzzle, but how we can be a leader globally in helping the world to transition to a lower uh, GHG uh, reality. I said before that you're not a politician, but you are an economist. You're a guy who knows how money works better than anyone listening right now, probably. And looking at the recommendations in this in this thing, there are some that are simply, hey, let's the recommendations. We want to push for ideas, but there are others that would require quite a bit of money. It would seem government money to make this happen. And that's, I think, where a lot of people are going to say, well, can we afford this? We've got the government's being told you have to spend billions on this and billions on this and billions on this. There, There is a, a finite amount of money that can be spent. Can we afford to do this? Well, you're absolutely right. There is a finite amount of money, and that's why we want to focus the expenditures in the ones that can also generate returns to make the investment sustainable. If you're doing things that are only inward looking, you're going to end up having spent a ton of money, have a relatively minimal impact from a global perspective, and not be able to sustain those investments going forward. So this is about how we do it, how we do it smart, so that we get leverage and that we can sustain it. It's, uh, it is it is. I have read 90% of it. Um, it. It is a very in-depth document, let me tell you that. And uh, I'm sure it's, I, is it public today or, or is it, uh, it when is will it become today. available? Go to OCC.ca and also we have um, a uh, free webinar to, that's launching it tomorrow. We're going to have incredible experts um, and we'll be getting questions and so on. So I highly recommend people um, uh, sign up. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's free and you get the benefit of some super smart people to, to challenge um, some of the ideas out there and to lay out some of the opportunities. Because again, um, every crisis also provides opportunities through innovation uh, for growth and development. And, uh, and this is uh, this is an enormous one, and Ontario is well positioned, and we want it to be through public policy uh, put into an even better position to leverage it for the benefit of the globe and the benefit of everyone here in Ontario. Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. Thanks so much, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The baseball season ended last night. The Atlanta Braves beat the Houston Astros to win the World Series 7 nothing. Which, you know, we'll get to that stuff in just a second. But something about this year's baseball playoffs and 
I, I have not gone back and checked every score of every playoffs for the last number of years. But more than a few times in these playoffs, it struck me that, boy, there seems to be a lot of lopsided games. W- wasn't there a time, didn't there seem to be a time when baseball playoffs were two things, generally low scoring, not always, but generally low scoring, and usually pretty close. And going back to the generally low scoring, you know, we were talking just before the break about the Blue Jays. Do you remember in the 1993 World Series, those of you old enough to be alive for that and to remember that, that the Jays beat the Philadelphia Phillies one game, I think it was 15-14, which was crazy. I mean, look, by any stretch, that's a crazy score. But the purists were losing their minds. 15-14 in a playoff game, what's the world coming to? Can nobody get anybody out? Of course, the flip side of that is both teams had unbelievable hitters that year. I think that was the year the Jays had Olerud, Alomar, Molitor, who in some order finished 1-2-3 in American League batting. Um, they also had Ricky Henderson. They also had Joe Carter. They all, I mean, it went on and on. It's not like they didn't have great hitters. Nonetheless, there was a time when, boy, blowout scores in playoff games were almost seen as shocking. This playoffs... I just pulled this thing up. So you, you go back to the division series, 6 1-5-0, 14-6, 9-2, 12-6, 10-1. Rolling through here. I mean, they're, they're just 12-3, 9-1, 9-2, 9-2, That was all in like two days. I don't know. Baseball either has changed or it was just a weird year that we had this year, a weird scenario that so many games were now maybe maybe the benefit to this paul tipple who works in the 900 chml newsroom and i were chatting the other day about these lopsided scores and you know one of the good bits about this is the other thing baseball is dealing with that some people are complaining about is the length of the games continues to be some people say way too long so on the positive side a lopsided score, a score that gets way out of hand, allows you to go to bed early. <laughs> Paul has to be up at some ridiculous hour of the morning. So he was able to see all the baseball he needed because a lot of the games were over by the third or fourth inning so he could go to bed and not miss anything. So maybe maybe we should be celebrating the blowouts in baseball rather than being upset about them. Maybe we should be encouraging less drama than ruining less drama because then you don't have to stay up all night. I mean, even last night, in a 7 nothing game, it took a while. And and I am, I am not among those who generally complain about the length of a baseball game because I do think that the drama and the buildup and the tension and all those kind of things, um, I, I'm okay with that in, in a playoff game. Don't love a four-and-a-half-hour regular season game. But uh, anyway. Uh, Mike Wilder writes for the Toronto Star on baseball. He joins us now. Michael, how are you this morning? Good morning. How are you? Did you get some sleep last night, or were you up late celebrating with Alex Anthopoulos? Uh, well, I was <laughs> I was up late talking to Alex, for sure, but not sharing uh, in the celebration, uh, making sure he's okay, all of that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I managed to, to still get close to eight hours in. You know, we talk about, we start this thing with Alex Anthopoulos. I I don't know how many pure Atlanta Braves fans there are in Southern Ontario, but I do believe there were an awful lot of people who were rooting for them because Alex Anthopoulos now is the GM there and because he still conjures up some warm feelings for people here, especially after that 2015 Blue Jays team. I mean, he he is still a guy that, that a lot of people around here root for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and a lot of it has to do, like you said, with 2015, with, with the, uh, circumstances of him leaving, um, the fact that he went out on such a high, you know, he was, uh, remember announced as major league baseball's executive of the year during his goodbye news conference. Um, and, and, you know, what, what he did for that team after 22 years of, of nothing, um, is, is not going to be forgotten. But it's not just Alex. There are a lot of Blue Jays connections there. You know, he brought some people with him, um, which sort of helps with those Blue Jays connections. But, 
the training staff, George Poulos and Mike yep. Frostad and Jeff Stevenson are all there, and, and we're all here for a long time. Uh, Sal Fasano was a Blue Jay and a Blue Jays coach. He's there now. John Gibbons was the advanced scout for the uh, – he, he advanced the Astros uh, before the World Series. Devin Travis is, is in the organization as a coach. Um, there are a lot of, you know, Jesse Chavez is there. There are a lot of Blue Jay connections. And, and, and for me, anyway, that's the reason, um, combined with the fact that the Astros are still, to me, a bunch of dirty cheaters, um, <laughs> that's, that's why I was pulling for the Braves um, and, and looking past the tomahawk chop and looking at the, all the other things. All right, I want to get to the dirty cheaters in just a second, but first, one more thing. I expect that the Braves will continue, by the way, to mine the Blue Jays because, look, the two times they've won a championship since they moved to Atlanta now, 1995, who was their manager? Bobby Cox, who left the Blue Jays to go join the Braves, and now you got Anthopoulos, who left the Blue Jays and ended up there. I mean, Atlanta has quickly has obviously found their secret for success. Just keep taking guys from the Blue Jays and you win championships. Well, don't forget, too, Fred McGriff was a huge piece of that 1995 Braves yep. World Series championship. Bobby Cox was a little different because Bobby Cox, you know, the Blue Jays stole him from the Braves, and so he, he wound up going back. Um, but, we, for, we leave uh, out yeah, that part. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not a bad formula. The Dirty Cheaters. Also not a bad um, formula, by the way, to win fewer, win fewer games in the regular season than the Blue Jays and not beat them at all during the regular season and then go win the World Series. Oh, yeah, that'll that'll drive Blue Jays fans a little bit nuts. I think the, Jay, what, the Jays had 91 wins in the regular season. Atlanta had 88, was it? And the Jays That's don't right. even make the playoffs and the Braves end up winning the World Series. And the uh, them's the breaks, I guess, but boy, that's a little Atlanta. frustrating. Yeah, and the Jays were 6-0 and against Atlanta this season, too. Um, you know, they, they I think they were done with them by by May, but they... Played them six times, beat them all six times, and it's it's interesting. There was a graphic last night during the game that was put up about how 88 wins, I think, is the fourth fewest for a World Series champion in the 162 game era, and some of the others, uh, the 2006 St. Louis Cardinals won 86 games, the 1987 Minnesota Twins won 87 games. and the Blue Jays won more games than all those teams in each of those seasons and didn't make the playoffs in any of those seasons. So can we extrapolate then that had the Blue Jays been in a different division and been in the playoffs this year, they guaranteed would have won this World Series? I think a lot of people want to extrapolate that. <laughs> I think it's a little too far for me. Let's go back to the dirty cheaters for a minute. We're going to come back to Atlanta, but the, the, about the dirty cheaters, as you described, uh, look, I, I think that truly, if you even if you didn't have an Alex Anthopoulos card in this deck and you didn't have a horse in the race or all the other cliches or metaphors you want to use, I think that there were hordes of people just hoping that I don't care who wins, just make sure it's not Houston because they're still sour about what happened and the fact that they got off basically with no punishment. And they should be, right? Um, they should be. I, I can't tell you. Every time you mention the Astros or or the cheating, I get just overwhelmed by, on social media by Astros fans uh, who, like, search for the word and whatever. Um, and a lot of them say, you know, get over it already. It was a long time ago. And I'm thinking... Two years <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we found out about it last year. Um, and it happened four years ago. You know, Shoeless Joe Jackson isn't in the Hall of Fame, and that happened 102 years ago. Um, people haven't gotten over that yet. People haven't gotten over Barry Bonds with, uh, being the all-time home run leader. That happened close to 20 years ago. Um, no, no, you don't get over it, especially when there was no punishment, you know, no player. Yeah, that's uh, it missed a single hour of time or lost any money at all. Um, So, no, no, there's no, you know. And, and yeah, there were a lot of other teams that were doing a lot of of stuff. um, But nothing was so brazen. Nothing was so over the line as what Houston did. 
and uh, and they got they completely got away with it. Like, not only did nobody get punished for it, you, who cares if you lose an executive or two or a draft pick? Um, they won the World Series, and and that's you know that's the ultimate getting away with it. I I, I I'm not gonna lie. I even had a lot of trouble this year watching the Blue Jays and wanting good things for George Springer. And I realized that once he leaves and he joins the Jays, everyone around here says, ah, now he's a Blue Jay and all is the slate is clean. Uh, you know, I, I had trouble with that one. I, I, it was To me, it was a very complicated situation being interested or wanting to see the guy succeed because he, I think he had this, according to the stats or whatever, he had the second highest number of garbage pail bangs or something because they keep stats of everything. I, I it, It's a struggle with all the guys who play on that team, to me anyway. Yeah, it, it, and you're, you know, you're not alone in that. And, and I think, you know, I, I wrote in February that... Uh, that the stain of that scandal is going to stick with Springer for his entire career, and it's going to stick with the rest of them for their entire careers. I hope, I hope, I, you know, I hope we don't get into the get over it thing. For me, at least, Springer was seemingly genuinely remorseful at the time. He, he seemed to be the the guy who took it the hardest and who was the most sincere in his. Uh, apology, and then went on to have a better year in 2018 and a better year in 2020, and uh, you know, injured a, a really good year in 2021. Uh, but the whole thing for all of them was they didn't need it. I, I mean, the, the you know the the um, the idea that they used the banging to run up scores in games they'd already won, or, or you know. I don't know. I I remember. I'll, you know, I'll never forget doing a, a Jays game in Houston in 2017, where I believe the Astros scored six runs in the bottom of the ninth to come back and win. Um, and uh, so, people who say, "Well, they were just running up scores," I don't know about that. I I, I I can't imagine that that's the case. And look, with Springer. Having interacted with him a few times, he's always been very kind, very nice. He's a smart guy. Um, he, like everybody else, got caught up in it. And I'm sure, you know, they're, they're, they're villains, but they, I'm sure at the time they're thinking, well, everybody's doing something, so we're just doing another something. But uh, that nobody stood up and said, hey, you can't do this. Like, nobody, as much as people want to say, well, Altuve didn't participate, or A.J. Hinch tried to stop it. Well, he didn't try hard enough. Nobody tried hard enough. Uh, so they're all going to wear it. And for mm-hmm. me, um, you know, one of, the, one of the cool things about this new life for me as a, as a writer as opposed to a broadcaster is that I'm a member now of the, the Baseball Writers Association of America, and... Hopefully, 10 years hence, if, if they're still letting me do this and it still works the same, I'll get a Hall of Fame vote. And um, I've said it a few times. Nobody from the 17 Astros is ever going to get a Hall of Fame vote from me. There you Nobody. go. Uh, my one regret from this World Series, truly, was that the Dodgers didn't win from the National League, if only so that we would have had a repeat of that World Series and Houston would have had to go to Los Angeles and play some games there because that would have been, uh, that would have been wild. I don't even know what that would have been, but uh, that would have been a scene. It really would have. Um, it would have, but we don't know if the Dodgers would have won, right? So no, be happy that's true. That the Houston loss to Atlanta, um, it, it would have been, it would have been insane. But um, the Dodgers quite clearly aren't going anywhere. Um and if Houston remains good, and they're probably going to lose Carlos Correa, and that's going to be a big blow, and uh, who knows what's going to be with the pitching. Um, so they they might be moving into a cycle where they're not going to be as good for a while, but um, interleague play will allow us to have some Dodgers-Astros games. We got a couple in L.A. during the regular season this year. So, um, yeah, it's, it's too, it would have been a lot of fun to see. I'm happier to, to just see Houston lose. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so every winner in every sport, every team that wins a championship, literally in every sport, spawns imitators because all the other teams look and go, okay, what did they do right? We're going to try and do that. What is it that people, that teams are going to look at the Braves 
and say that is something that we have to try and do? Hopefully, uh, you know, the, the operative word there is try. You know, there, there are so many teams in Major League Baseball who tank. Uh, and a fewer this year than, than uh, the year before, but they're always, since the, since the Cubs and Astros did what they did and went through multiple hundred lost seasons and came out the other side and won championships, um, and frankly, owners saw how much money they save when they tank uh, and put a crappy team on the field for a few years. That's been the way to go. The Blue Jays only did it for one year in 2019, but they did it. Um, and what uh, what the Atlanta Braves did, what, what Alex Anthopoulos did, was see a 500 team at the trade deadline, just like he did in 2015, and improve it. And you know, not push all the chips in because they, you know, they didn't really make the big, huge splash trades. But he got a whole new outfield. Um, he picked up Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler, the NLCS MVP and the World Series MVP. He picked up Jock Peterson, uh, and he he went for it. And he tried to improve a team where he could very easily have gone the other way, saved some money. Um, and and been terrible, like so many teams do. So hopefully, what uh, the the lesson that everybody takes from this is, it's not such a terrible idea to try to win every once yeah. in a while. Uh, let's go back to Anthopoulos, since you've uh, mentioned him again. The Blue Jays had a good season this year, as as we said off the top, a better regular season, in fact, than the Braves, and so. That probably saves Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins a massive migraine because if Anthopoulos wins this and the Blue Jays have a crappy year, um, you know what the fans are going to be saying. But even so, does this put pressure on Shapiro and Atkins to win a championship? Now, more pressure because the guy they replaced has done it? I, I don't think so from their perspective anyway. I don't think they think that way. Um, I don't think they care what the fans think um, because I think that they think that they're doing what they should be doing in order to eventually put together a team that's good enough to win a championship. And honestly, they did put together a team that was good enough to win a championship. You know, I, I can't imagine that there's anyone who saw what the Blue Jays did in August and September and didn't think that if they made the playoffs, they would have been the team that nobody wanted to face, and they would have been the team that uh, um, gave everybody the most headaches and, and, and may well have have won the thing. So uh, it just it came together a little too late this year. They missed by that one game. Um, but, you know, this, this was a really, really, really good team at the end of the season. They, I think they were... 39 and 20 or something after coming back to Toronto. Um, so, no, I, I, I mean, uh, there are already fans who are saying, hey, look at Anthopolis and, and, and had he stayed and these guys are terrible and all that stuff. But, um, but I, I mean, you, you really can't argue much mm. with the team that they've put together and, and with the job that they've done. No. And, and, if they uh, won 50 games, it would have been something different, but they had a good team. So it's, uh, you know, different. All right. We got to run in a second here, but I got to say, Mike, uh, among all the people who cover baseball, I, you are among those who have the greatest capacity to remember Picayune details about baseball. So I'm going to put you to the test here because we started this by talking about how the Braves were the team. The Blue Jays won when they won their first world series back in 92. So you have no warning about this. How many of the Braves starting lineup from that World Series in 92 can you remember? Uh, well, uh, you know, Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz, and Avery, the, uh, the, starters. the starting rotation. But it, actually, I don't think Maddox was there in 92. Um, but, uh, <laughs> okay, you had, uh, I want to say, Damon Berryhill was the catcher. Yep. Um, Jeff Blauser was a shortstop. Terry yep. Pendleton was the third baseman. Mark Lemke yep. played second. <laughs> um, I, if you get none Ray others, Ray you've already Ray. succeeded. 
I don't know if it was Sid Bream at first or if he was 91. He was the guy nope. who uh, Barry Bonds couldn't throw out at home yep, plate. Yeah, Bream was there. Bream yeah, was there you go. I'll, we'll, we'll cut it there because we're out of time. But, yes, you got okay, every good. single one of those right. See? Amazing. Thank you, but I didn't get to the outfield, and I don't know if I would. Uh, if I would. Oh, Lonnie Smith hit the grand slam off of, that's uh, right. off of Jack Morris. That's for sure. There you go. Right, well, Mike, Mike Wilner, see? Even if you didn't get all the rest, you got more than any other human would have got, except for maybe the guys on that team. Well done. Really, really appreciate the time as always today. Thanks for doing this. All right. Happy to help. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.